0: The Latter-day Lives Podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to Episode 152 of the Latter-day Lives Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier, so grateful that you're checking in with us again this week. Before we get into our conversation, we want to thank a a new reviewer on Apple Podcasts. We got a five-star review from uh, user 684COL. Thank you so much for your wonderful words and your five-star review. They really help get the word out there, and we appreciate it. Uh, This week on the show, my guest, David T. Morgan, is such an amazing man. I really pondered a lot of what he had to say uh, since the the time that we spoke together. He is a psychologist and an author and a speaker and a really just great guy to talk to. You will love this conversation. And coming up this week in my latter-day life, hey dad, the mountain's on fire. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today here on the Latter-day Lives podcast, my guest is a licensed psychologist who is also an author, he's a podcast host, he is a speaker, and he's an incredibly inspiring guy, David T. Morgan. Welcome to the show. Grateful to be here. Thank you, Sean. For our listeners, David and I have never met. Uh, David, tell us where you are recording from. So I'm in Vancouver, Washington in the United States. Mm, beautiful area. That's fantastic. It is. And also sometimes gets confused with uh with the other Vancouver. <laughs> with Vancouver, British Columbia. That's right. They they uh, you'll see t-shirts that
1: say Vancouver, not British Columbia, Washington, not D.C.
0: <laughs> I've not seen that. That's great. Uh, well, I'm so glad, uh, but we've, we've never met in person, so I'm super excited to hear your story and to get to know you. Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up?
1: So I was born in Provo, Utah. My parents were uh, students at BYU at the time. I'm the oldest of eight children, and so um, once uh, mom and dad graduated, we moved to California, lived most of my life, uh, or I should say my uh, up until I was 18 in California, there was a three-year stint in Wyoming. Um, but other than that, we were in the Bay Area or down in Bakersfield, which is in the San Joaquin Valley. Sure. That's where I uh, left for my mission um, and for BYU. And then – uh, was ten years at BYU, and then ended up back in the
0: northwest. We've been here for twenty-two years. So, what were you like as a young person? First of all, were you raised in the church?
1: Yes, I was uh, born and raised in the church. Um, uh, I, I kind I, I, of
0: assumed so, with Provo, Utah, being where yeah. you were where you were born. But I didn't want to make too big of assumptions. Sure. But, uh, no, but, I, uh, ancestors on both
1: sides. Uh, I think both of, on both sides they converted in England. And uh, and were part of that mass emigration to the United States with all those saints. I, I grew up in the church, served a mission. Where did you serve your mission? I was in Veracruz, Mexico, mm. uh, but I was supposed to go to Colombia, uh, to Cali, Colombia. In fact, that was my my original assignment was to Colombia, and so we all we went to the MTC. This is in the late eighties, and. Uh, and and back then, I don't know if they still do it, they did what's called culture class, which is where they teach you about the place you go to. (laughs) And so for for eight weeks, we were there for nine weeks to learn the language. And for eight weeks, I went to these Colombian culture classes. And then on the eighth week, uh, the MTC president brought about Ten of us into a room, and he said, "Your assignments are being changed because there was a lot of political unrest in Colombia at the time, mm. and uh, and missionaries were being pulled out." And so I got assigned to Veracruz, Mexico. Uh, and I have this great picture of me pointing to the the big world map there in the MTC with this confused look on my face. You know, pointing to Veracruz because I'd never heard of it. <laughs> Had eight weeks of Colombian culture under my belt and didn't have any time to study about Veracruz and. Uh, but that, it, was, it was a great blessing. I learned to love the Mexican people, uh, the greatest
0: great, greatest people on earth. How was your mission?
1: It was amazing. Um, I remember I remember the, the first day I was there, uh, waking up, it, it felt like it was four in the morning, but it was as bright as noon. and, and I'm laying in this cot. Um, it was a kind of a ramshackle apartment. And, and I remember hearing this uh, this orange vendor, he was selling oranges, and this little mm-hmm. horse-drawn or, or burrow-drawn cart that he's, and you hear this clip-clop, and you hear this just this scream of, Naranhas, naranjas, <laughs> as he's going by. And this startles me uh, out of a dead sleep, and it's probably 95 degrees and 90% humidity because it's a tropical climate down there. And I remember thinking, yeah. what in the world am I doing here? And that was... Uh, <laughs> And that was the only time that I felt like I didn't want to go home. I wanted to go back to the MTC. The other thing I had realized very quickly upon landing in Mexico City was that I didn't speak Spanish nearly as well as I thought I did uh, <laughs> after eight weeks of training, nine weeks of training. I thought, hey, I, I got this language down pretty good, and I couldn't understand a thing anyone was saying. Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, the first, oh, I think we I'd been out about two weeks, and I was on a on an exchange with another companionship. And so this elder, they had a, a young woman that they were teaching. And so he had me take the lead in the second discussion, which back then was where you do a commitment to baptism. Sure. And uh, and I committed her baptism and she said yes, and it was wonderful. And she ended up getting baptized. And I ended up meeting her again about 18 months later. And by then my Spanish was amazing. I, I was dreaming in Spanish and thinking yes. in Spanish and I could barely put two English words together. Uh, And so I I talked to her and she says, Elder, do you remember that lesson you taught me? I said, yeah. She said, I didn't understand a word you said. (laughs) But she felt like it was right. She felt like it was good. And I met some amazing, amazing people and have fallen out of touch with so many of them. Some, now that we have social media, it's a little bit easier to get in touch. But I, I look forward with great anticipation to the Afterlife, and there's going to be a, an amazing reunion because there were some people that they were there. We, there was no coincidence that we were both there at the same time. And yeah, it was amazing. Did
0: you get home from your mission. Was it a, kind of a foregone conclusion that you were going to be heading to BYU?
1: Yeah, I had done my first year at BYU. I graduated from high school and then did my first year at BYU and then my mission. So I'd already had a year under my belt. Um, and uh, the uh, it was a little bit strange because we lived in California at the time, and so my and I was returning home uh, mid July, and so my mom was trying to make arrangements for housing and and those sort of things. Well, a lot of returned missionaries live off campus. You don't live in the dorms your second year, but the only thing you could get over the phone, you know, uh, was the dorms. And so I ended up in the dorms again in uh, Deseret Towers, if you remember. Oh yeah, DT, were, DT, sure. absolutely. Yeah, I was in uh, V Hall. And, mm. uh, and good thing because my wife, my future wife was in tea hall and, uh, and that's where we met was that year, uh, my, my sophomore year, her freshman year. Um, awesome. She had come with no anticipations to get married whatsoever. She wanted to date a whole bunch of people and, uh, and she did for about, uh, 12 weeks. And then <laughs> she met me and, and, uh, I remember, maybe about six weeks into dating it just it just seemed so right and I um I always say that I threatened her with marriage which is kind of the wrong way to say it but I just basically said <laughs> I said look Kristen it, either we're gonna get married or we're gonna break up I mean that's the only two ways this thing is, is, is gonna go this relationship I said so what do you want to do and she's like Okay, I guess we'll get married. I thought fantastic. So 20, <laughs> 29 years later. Yeah.
0: Twenty-nine years later. There's yeah. nothing nothing uh, more, you know, gratifying than hearing a woman say, Well, then I guess we'll get yeah, married. Exactly. But hey, it worked for you. That's awesome. It, yes. That fantastic. <laughs> I love that story. So you go to BYU. Did you know that you wanted to get into psychology going in, or did that come later?
1: So I when I was in high school, it was when I first started getting interested in mental health. And I, I thought I wanted to be a child psychiatrist, um, mm. which uh, I don't know why. I, I think I thought maybe because you know children need a lot of help, um, and uh, and if you can intervene young, then hopefully that you know helps them later in life. And I don't know why psychiatrist versus psychologist. Uh, I really don't remember. So can
0: can you, for our audience, and when I say our audience, I mean me, will you (laughs) clarify again the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? Of course,
1: yeah. So a psychiatrist is a medical doctor with a specialization in mental health. So, like an oncologist is a medical doctor with a specialization in cancer treatment, and a gynecologist is a medical doctor with a specialisation specialisation in uh, you know women's um, woman issues. A psychiatrist is a medical doctor with a specialization in mental health. So they go to medical school and um, and get all the basic training of medical school. And then the last third of their training is when they specialize and become psychiatrists. A psychologist is a PhD, um, and, and it's just all psychology all the time. So usually the bachelor's is in psychology. Sometimes there's a master's, sometimes there isn't. I, I have a master's as well. And then- yeah. And so psychiatrists typically focus on medication because that, cause they gotcha. can prescribe medication. And then a psychologist would typically focus on counseling.
0: Perfect. That's perfectly clear. Um, so you thought you were going to be going into child psychiatry. Child you psychiatry. Up, so what, what switched you over to uh, pursuing psychology? So two things. One
1: was... Um, on my mission, uh, one day Mike we were out playing basketball and my companion got hit in the face with the ball and cut his lip open so I took him to an urgent care and while they are stitching him up, I almost pass out by watching that needle go in and out of his lip. I mean I, I felt all the blood just go straight to my feet and I, and I, I'm seeing stars and so I thought, okay, medical school is probably going to be a little more intense than you know doing stitches with a with a needle. And so that was my first clue. My my second clue sure. was when I got back to BYU, I enrolled in Biology 200, which is the um, one of the first classes you would take as a pre-medical. And it was it was also what they called a weeder class, which is to kind of get those people out who weren't very serious about medicine in the first place. And so they mm-hmm. just I mean this this thing was like drinking from a fire hose. And it was like, okay, for tomorrow, you'll read this, these 50 pages. And for Thursday, you'll read these 100 pages. And it was just- Wow. There was just so much information. And I remember just, just getting so quickly overwhelmed with it, uh, but, but stayed in the class. And, um, and then uh, probably about um, uh, three weeks in was the first test. And so I'm up at Deseret Towers and the testing center, of course, is in the Grant building, which is all the way across campus. And I am uh and I'm trying to think, how badly do I want to be a physician? How badly do I want to be a psychiatrist? Yeah. And do I wanna be it so bad that I'm gonna go take this test, which I am woefully unprepared for? Um hmm. and so if you know your BYU geography, the administration building is in between Deseret Towers, is on the way from Deseret Towers to the Grant Building Testing Center. So I stopped at the administration building, officially withdrew from biology 200 and walked back to DT with a lightness in my step I hadn't felt in three weeks. And uh, (laughs) decided at that point that I was going to be a psychologist. So,
0: (laughs) Oh, that is awesome. So you never looked back, you got into psychology. Did you know once you started studying psychology, what you specifically wanted to do? And then what did you end up doing?
1: So, So no, I I didn't. Uh, I I finished my bachelor's at uh, at BYU. I applied for master's programs. um, Applied for a couple of different schools in addition to BYU. But I originally thought that I wanted to be a professor and and teach at the university level. Mm. And what I had heard, and and what may still be true, is that if you want to teach at a particular university, you need to get educated at a different university. Um, Oh, okay. I don't think I've ever heard that. That way, so they're not bringing in the same information, you know. Right, right. Getting a different perspective. So I said, okay, so there's no way I can do my doctorate at BYU. So I applied, um, being a West Coaster. I figured, how far east am I willing to go? And uh, some of my professors had got their doctorates at University of Minnesota, which is an amazing psychology program. So I drew a line straight south from Minnesota and applied to every (laughs) doctoral program west of there, which was 13 (laughs) programs. Um, And I almost did not apply to BYU, but our department chair at the last minute encouraged me to do it. And I thought, well, what the heck, Um, I'll apply there as well. And then I got it fully accepted to BYU and to University of North Dakota. Um, mm. And North Dakota just seemed way out in the middle of nowhere and, and not appealing. I did not get uh, into Minnesota or Oregon. Um, and so I ended up at BYU, which turned out to be amazing. And, and what I didn't realize then was that I was never going to be a college professor And but what I was going to do was what I what I needed was I needed to learn psychology through a gospel lens. I needed to be able to see how to integrate the two of those things. Um, And I and I definitely would not have gotten that at Minnesota or Oregon. In fact, on the contrary, I would have gotten a steady dose of that religion is unimportant um, and uh, you know not germane to this. Um, So that, you know, the Lord knew,
0: you know, this, this theme of combining the gospel perspective uh, with psychology is a lot of what you're known for. And we'll get into that in just a minute. I just want to kind of finish out the journey. Uh, You ended up then leaving Utah, you headed up to Pacific Northwest then, is that right?
1: Yeah. So we, um, here's another, I I tell you, Heavenly Father has, um, and I think it's the case for all of us. Uh, he has very um, specific plans for us. Uh, there are some people who believe that um, he just kind of stands back from a distance. Maybe he gave the world a big spin at the beginning and he checks in on us every you know 200 years to see how we're doing. I don't believe that for a second. I think he is intimately involved um, with with a lot of our decision-making, with totally circumstances, circumstances in our lives that we think are completely random. But I think he's got his finger on the button um, all the time. And if only because we're his children, he's not going to waste it. He's not going to put it up to chance. He And, and I don't know. I, I, I can't quite reconcile how he's able to do that while still respecting our agency. But I know he does. And I know right. he has influence um topic for a different time but so as I was completing my doctorate we had to do internships and the way it worked back then was on a certain day in February from eight o'clock a.m to 12 o'clock p.m um whatever probably central time these internships would call and they would let Ooh. you know if you've been accepted and so if your phone didn't ring then that's it <laughs> you know you are you, you know you, you didn't you know better luck next year. And so I'm just sitting there in my little den there in Provo, and just a blind panic, you know, waiting for that phone to ring. And um, I thought, "Geez, I applied to 18 places. Surely it's going to ring sometime." It finally rang. It was someone else. It wasn't the, an internship. And I'm like, "Get off the phone! I can't talk, you know, because we didn't have call waiting or anything. This was, yeah, a, sure. you know, Back in the in the 90s, I think they had a call waiting, but we were cheap students. We didn't have money for
0: Yeah, that. right. And
1: so." So finally it rings and it's an internship in Portland, Oregon, and it was the only offer I got. And we, uh, so of course I took it, um, but uh, it's just been such a blessing to be out here.
0: Isn't that great to be able to look back and to kind of see the Lord's hand in things? I, I think that's just awesome. It's remarkable.
1: and it And one of the things when I talk with people about anxiety management is just, that's one of the tools you can use is looking back at the experiences that you've had and seeing in the aggregate, there are so many evidences to me of how the Lord has sustained me and he's prepared us and he's put us in the places we need to be at the right time. And yet here I sit in 2021 panicked about something that's supposed to happen six months from now. And I just think how ridiculous is this getting? Because I have so much evidence that he has sustained me that why would he stop now? And of course Mm. he won't. And so, oh, and so sometimes that. that can help to temper anxiety when we just look back at, at how things have gone and.
0: Absolutely. That's our
1: yardstick for the future.
0: At what point did you decide to take your talents and apply them to. And, I, and I'm not sure which came first, whether it was speaking first or, uh, or books. What, what right. came first outside of private practice?
1: Uh, the writing came first. And um, I had, oh man, probably 10 years ago. I had had the idea to write a book, um, based on second Nephi, second Nephi chapter four, which is the Psalm of Nephi. Um, and this is, uh, it's right after Lehi dies. Nephi has assumed, uh, the prophetship, the mantle and, uh, Laman and Lemuel are just on fire about it because now Nephi's in charge and, but they should be in charge because they're all the the oldest brethren. And so, uh, kind of a civil war erupts and there's a division among the people and that's, basically where Zarahemla gets created because the land of Lehi-Nephi is where they originally founded, and that's where the Lamanites stayed, Laman and Lemuel and their descendants, and Nephi moved his people. And and then throughout the Book of Mormon, you have all the descendants of Nephi trying to get back to the land of their nativity and the land of Lehi-Nephi, and that's a lot of the difficulties come from that. Right, but, yeah. Anyway, so in about the middle of the chapter, in chapter four, Nephi says, Oh, wretched man that I am. And he just goes on about his difficulties and his trials, and he's just really down. But then as you continue to read, he stops and he thinks about it. And he says, But wait a minute. He almost does what I just talked about. He says, but let me think about what has gone on in the past and what right. the Lord has done for me. And by the end of the chapter, he's just on top of the world, and he's saying, awake my soul, no longer droop in sin. And uh, and he's he's praising God and feeling much better. And so as I looked at that uh, years ago, I thought, you know, that's maybe that's a recipe for how we can get through difficult times, um, you know, mm. using the same principles that Nephi talks about. And so for years, I just kind of had the idea and never really did anything with it. So our oldest, he went to a year at BYU, uh, applied to, for mission service, uh, gets his assignment to Madagascar, wow. of all places, right? Yeah. And um, what we did not know at the time was Jordan was suffering for some pretty significant anxiety. Um, mm. We just, it was just. I, I don't know. I, I always think, "Geez, how could I not see that?" I'm a psychologist, for heaven's sakes, I should be able to see that. But it's a little different when it's yourself, or yeah, when you're, you're so close. Your children, sure. I, I'm sure his anxiety was sky high. Thinking Madagascar, he's a picky eater, so holy cow, you know, talk about yeah, right. You know, there's no windies on the corner in uh, uh, in, in Madagascar, so sure. he uh, goes to the MTC, and uh, and about four weeks in, we get an unexpected call, and it was him. Which uh, uh, didn't happen back then. Um, I don't know if it happens now. They call weekly now, but back then it was Mother's sure. Day, and Christmas, yeah. and never from the MTC. And he called and he said, "Well, I'm, I'm, I've been having a lot of anxiety, but I'm talking to a counselor here, and and everything's going to be fine, and I'm going to go on my mission, and it's all going to be good." And and I said, "Oh, okay. Well, great. You know, you're talking to a counselor. That's awesome. Good for you." And so then the Monday. So now about another four weeks go by. And um, so this is a Friday and the next Monday he was flying out and late that Friday afternoon, I get another call unexpected and it's uh, one of the seven MTC presidents. And he says, I need you and your wife to get on a plane and get here right now. And uh, he said, your your son's going to be going home, but we need you here right now. And so we got the next plane to Salt Lake city out of Portland, uh, it was late by the time we got there, and so we ended up uh, making arrangements to get there in the morning. And um, I remember, and of course, I, I've got just all these, you know, thoughts going through my mind of what in the world, you know, why, why is this happening? Right. Um, I remember uh, sitting in the MTC parking lot with my wife Kristen, and, and we prayed before we went in, and I was just praying. I said, Heavenly Father, let Jordan stay. You know, let him stay on his mission. He, mm. he's He's just, you know, he's just an anxious kid. He's going through some stuff and and he needs to stay. And so we get in there. And, and as soon as we sat down with the president, it became very clear to me that this was not a negotiation. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. there to provide counsel. It was like, we've decided and this is what, you know, you're going to do. Um, yeah. And, and Jordan had just had a, a massive anxiety attack. And, um, sure. and, and it became clear that, that he wasn't going to be able to continue to serve right away. So he came home with us and, um, for about a year he was home and it was pretty rough. Uh, he was, um, he, there were some things he had to work out, which he eventually did ended up going back out and getting reassigned to Chicago, uh, mm. here in the United States. And, and it was there when he met the, um, one of the sister missionaries, um, who mm. he, she walked into a district meeting and he said in his mind, he said, "That's the woman I'm going to marry." He knew wow. right away that that was her, and so he said he was careful not to, you know, be weird on the mission or anything like that. But when <laughs> he got home and she got home, he looked her up and he said, "Hey, uh, would you like to go on a date?" And she said, "Sure." And now they're married for almost two years. Have our beautiful granddaughter Rigby, and um, but it was beautiful. it was it was after that experience. And my own kind of those trials that I went through during, that we all went through during that year that I thought I need to write this book. And so the actual, the beginning of the book is the story of, uh, of Jordan's mission experience and, and that, and, and then just this idea that we're all going through this stuff all the time. And Nephi went through it as well. And here's what he, and here's what he did to help himself through it. And so maybe if we do the same stuff, then, then we can get through it as well.
0: Did it, did it surprise you going through this? Like, like, you, you know, you mentioned that you should have seen it, but did it surprise you how difficult it was to deal with it? I mean, in, you know, in my head I go, well, Dave's a psychologist. He's going <laughs> to handle this like a champ. He's an active member. He's a psychologist. You've got the whole toolkit, but it sounds like it kind of, uh, you know, it, it, it caught you at times.
1: It did. And probably the, the biggest issue was, um, was dealing with the unexpected turn of events. I mean, you know, missionaries didn't come home. At yeah. least I thought. I mean, I know that they do now, but but I thought, well, they just don't come home. You send them out, and and they come home in two years to a hero's welcome. I mean, we we would sit on the on the second uh, row there in the chapel, and and after he came home, we sat in the back. You know, we were all just kind of ashamed. It, it was just hard, Um right. and, and people wanted to know, well, what's he doing home and. And I said, um, and our line was, "If you want to know, you, you can ask him." Um, and and yeah. some and some people did; those that loved him asked him, and and he was able to explain it. And those were just, uh, and there were some, I think, who just had a, you know, morbid curiosity, and I don't know if they asked, and and that's okay. Um, yeah. But I remember um, one one thing that was that was personally difficult was just I had grown up. Uh, and our family, my family, had struggles. We had our difficulties, and and my the family I grew up in, and and so did we as we we're raising our children. But I just I had this I bought the common but mistaken um, idea that if you just live your life the way you're supposed to, you say your prayers, you do family home evening, you read your scriptures, then right. it's not then things aren't going to go off the rails. And I have found that is absolutely untrue. Um, and I've got a dozen evidences in scripture to show you. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just it's just not the way it works. In fact, if you're living the way you're supposed to, get ready for more trials because the Lord's probably going <laughs> to turn up the heat uh, just because that's the way we get stronger. And sure. so I just, I remembered sitting in, um, in the sacrament meeting and we were in the back. So I had the vantage point of seeing uh, everyone who was there. And there were probably... Um, six, maybe a dozen or so brethren, who were older than I was, maybe about ten years older, and each one of them had had some sort of difficulty with child, you know, a child—you know, a wayward child, or one who had left the church, or, or something like that. And um, and I'm ashamed to admit that in, in past times I had judged them personally, but but a little harshly, thinking, well. I wonder, you know, what they didn't do for family home evening, or I wonder, you know, how many family prayers they missed, or something like that. It was, it was horrible, and uh, and I remember thinking what high regard I had for every single one of them, and still do, just amazing, amazing people, and and I felt so bad, and I remember I I just had to get up and leave the meeting, and I went out to my car, and I just wept like a child um, as I and just in 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 an apologetic. Way to my father in heaven, just saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for having judged these people harshly. Uh, I, I see now that they, it's not. It's not like this. Um, and one of the great blessings of of having walked some of these rough roads is it gives you a lot of empathy. And our stake president was so great at the time, and um, and there were uh, probably another. I would say in the in the three or four years that followed, we had dinner with, went out to dinner with probably five or six couples that he sent to us and said, Hey, so-and-so's son is coming home early from his mission. Can you take him out to dinner? We said, Absolutely. And so we'd go out and, and be able to help them through the, you know, the landscape that we had already navigated. But it was just uh I I look back with much gratitude on that time in my life, and notwithstanding the difficulty. Um, the lessons, the lessons I learned, were just um, invaluable, and and the spiritual growth that I was able to go through, and my wife and our, our children as well, it was just amazing. So, uh, it was it was tough, but sure. as all difficult things. Uh, the Lord consecrates them for our gain, and and I and I don't know that I would have done it any different. Definitely not, because our daughter in law, Contessa, is remarkable, and our granddaughter is the cutest thing ever. So,
0: oh uh, uh, yeah, that's was those are the awesome me. rewards. <laughs> yes. Well, and 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 out of fairness to you, and you know, I mean, we're we're fairly close to the same age. I, you know, there was that's what it was when 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 someone came home from a mission. It was a lot of whispering, a lot of why, a lot of what went wrong. And I'm really grateful now we've had a couple of guests, two guests on who that's kind of their mission in life. They both came home from their missions early and they are doing podcasts and books and all kinds of things to dispel those myths and to, you know, to make it easier. And what a blessing that is, you know, I mean, that's, so this led to the first book. What was your first book called?
1: It's called my God hath been my support. And that's mm. a quote from, uh,
0: from second Nephi chapter four. Oh, this is the one based on Nephi. Right? Yeah. This is the okay. one based on Nephi.
1: And so it, it goes, um, as I, as I, as you read the verses after his lament, but before his, um, exaltation there, he talks about the various things that, that heavenly father has done for him. And so there's, so I extracted some principles out of that, like principles of forgiveness and prayer and love mm. and, um, remembering and those sort of things and so I just developed a chapter on each of those and and, and talked about how um, how that how applying that particular principle could can give you more spiritual strength and and greater resilience
0: yeah how hard was it to actually finish a book are you the kind of person that it's easy to sit down and just write
1: it was easy to write a crummy first draft I can tell you that much <laughs> um, <laughs> I uh, I got connected with a a friend of a friend who has done some uh, private editing for me. And she's amazing. Her name is Bonnie. If she listens to this, uh, she deserves a shout out because she is remarkable. So I sent that first draft to Bonnie and the poor woman. I mean, she's as diplomatic as they come. And she said, have you ever considered taking a writing class? <laughs> 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 and I thought, "Oh, you That's know, it's awesome. And so after many iterations, um, the writing came fairly easy. Uh, but what I found is that I write like I speak and, and that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, this podcast will probably be great and it's a very, hopefully it'll be entertaining and enriching for people, but the transcript of this podcast is going to be crummy writing. Um, it's just not that that's not the way things should be structured. And so uh, Mm. she, she, she helped me, uh, quite a bit. And, um, And submitted to Deseret Book, Deseret Book uh, uh, passed on it, um, which I think because John, by the way, came out with a book right around the same time, which was called Moroni's Guide to Surviving Difficult Times or something like that. And so if you've got two books coming at the same time, one about how Nephi got through difficult times, and one about how Moroni got through difficult times, uh, and one is authored by a guy you've never heard of, and one is authored by a guy, John <laughs> Bytherley, and John's a good friend, and I love him, and and no hard feelings. But um, I, I I can imagine why that happened. And so Covenant yeah. Communications actually ended up picking it up, um, and, uh, and awesome. so it's on the shelves at Deseret Book, and the best thing is that on occasion and not very often, but every once in a while I'll get some feedback from people who say how it just helped them through difficult times. And, uh, and that's just as rewarding. I mean, even if it never sells another copy to have someone say this helped me during a time when I really needed it. Um, you know, we are, we're here to serve others and the experiences we have, are there to benefit the lives of others at some other point. Every rough road we travel just refines us to be able to help someone else down the road. Mm, And uh, and so I appreciate being able to have a a large megaphone to speak that from.
0: Oh, and this led to multiple books. uh, And I want to make sure that we get a chance to point this out, that if people want to see this and follow along, if they'll go to ldspsychologist.com you've got all the information. What What was the second book?
1: The second book was the my anxiety management book. It's called Peace Be Unto You, and it's anxiety management using gospel principles. And that was uh, just born out of a, what I saw and continue to see as a significant need, um, probably worldwide. Um, anxiety is, people often ask me, they say, are mental health issues getting more prevalent? Are we just noticing them more are people more willing to talk about them? and I think the answer is probably yes to all of those things uh, I think they're definitely there there's less stigma attached to them, and so we're we're talking about them a little bit more, and so we're we're recognizing that, but I also think that they're more frequent. um I was talking with some uh, sister missionaries the other day who had come over and and I was saying, you know I, I wonder. Our lives today, especially in, you know, in in the United States, they're very, very comfortable. Um, you know, we don't Mm -hmm. have a lot of, of difficulty, just kind of native difficulty. We don't have to clear our land to build a log cabin and get maple out of trees so we can have something sweet to put on our pancakes. Um, (laughs) you know, we don't have to do that anymore, right? I mean, some people may still do that for fun, but we don't have to. We go down to Walmart or Winco and, and pick up, uh, a bottle of syrup and and I think heavenly father is wise enough to know that we need difficulty we need trial we need something to push against in order to become better and I wonder if mental health is not the you know the difficulty du jour for you know this generation and it's going to be their thing they don't have to build a log cabin but maybe they have to struggle with anxiety or depression so and that one I ended up self-publishing Uh, just through Amazon. And so then I thought, you know, it might be nice to have a a more fleshed out workbook for this. And so the third book is just a work, a companion workbook to that um, Mm. that has uh, a very specific assignment. So it kind of follows chapter by chapter the principles, but then goes into some different things and tasks that you can do on a regular basis that uh, can help you learn to manage anxiety.
0: I love that. And coming full circle from your first book, who wrote the foreword on your second book?
1: So yes, yeah, so John. By the way, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, so
1: That's we it. were, yeah, we were on an Alaskan cruise that, uh, and he's done those. I think he did them probably every year for a long time, with the exception of this year. Um, and uh, it was my parents' fiftieth wedding anniversary, and so we all, all of my siblings and our spouses, uh, went on the cruise. It was wonderful. I had never been on a cruise before. And so we, and they said, and we're going to do it with John, by the way. I said, fantastic. Um, and I, I was familiar with him. And so, uh, my wife, Kristen says to me, well, you should tell him you wrote a book. And I said, I'm not going to tell him I wrote a book, you know, (laughs) you know, Oh, Hey, I wrote a book too. Right. And, uh, there was another woman on the cruise who were good friends of my parents they had met on their mission in Washington DC and she became a huge fan of my first book and is a very outspoken fan of that book and so awesome. and so um at some point I'm uh, over there and and I went over to say hello to John and his family it was just during some downtime, they were playing cards. I said, Hey, uh, I'm David. Nice to meet you. He said, Hey, David. He says, Hey, I heard you wrote a book. (laughs) And I said, (laughs) how'd you hear that? (laughs) And he says, well, your wife told me, and this other woman told me too. And I said, (laughs) "That's
0: great.
1: And uh, I said, yeah. He said, well, tell me about it. He was very gracious. And, and, uh, and I said, I I actually, I'm working on a second one. He says, really? Uh, And I told him what it was about. He said, awesome. He said, Hey, can I read it? Can I, uh, um, you know, just look at it and and see? Uh, and I thought, man, he was—he was just so magnanimous. And so he read it and and thought it was great. And and so I said, hey, would you be willing to write the forward? And he said, absolutely. And, and so that—that's on the shelf at Desiret Book too. But the only reason it's on the shelf is because of John's name, I think, because they said this <laughs> is <if it's, laughs> no. John. By the way, it's—it's it's just if you look at the fonts between my name and his name, his is a little bit smaller, but not much.
0: <laughs> it's bad name sure. to be associated with, but it yes. wouldn't have gotten on the shelves uh, without it being awesome. So. I don't
1: well maybe so.
0: How did the speaking all really begin?
1: Um I've loved public speaking uh just for the longest time. And um that's the I, I like writing. Um I love speaking and uh, because I think there is a um just in that, in the kind of in real time, in live, uh, being able to feel that revelation and the inspiration. And I, I, sp- I spoke a fair amount locally, you know, just at girls' camps and youth conferences and things like that. But one of the great blessings of COVID has been um, now these same platforms are reaching out, looking for talent. And, you know, cause it, it would be a much more difficult ask to go to onward productions and say, oh, I see you have Hank Smith and John, by the way, in your next, uh, you know, live event. Could you bump one of them for me? You know, and, and of course they're <laughs> going to say no, but if they're, you know, if they're on their 10th fireside and thinking, oh my goodness, we need someone else to speak. And I raise my hand and say, hey, I, I'd like to speak. And um, sure, so that's been, that's been a blessing.
0: Wow, that's now, I, Out of fairness. You're not just in just because they're running out of people. I mean, look, the reviews, I've read the reviews, and it's phenomenal. And just listening to you now, you've you've also taken this talent and have applied it to something near and dear to my heart, which is a podcast. Talk about uh, the gospel and mental health. Um,
1: so um, it is, my wife and I have done that. And we started it about a year ago, and we got about six episodes in, and um and haven't done another one. So it's uh, it, it looks great when you look at the front. We need to keep doing them. Uh, and we say it every week. We say, we need to record a podcast for me. We need to record a podcast. And the knife always gets in the way. I like it because it's my wife with me as well. And so we kind of banter back and forth about sure. about different things. And she's an amazing public speaker and has such amazing insights. I always tell her that she needs to be the psychologist. Um, that's been just something that we've done. And then very recently, with Onward Productions, uh, in fact, just this last Monday we, Monday, we launched our first, what we're calling Mental Health Mondays. And this is a, it's not a podcast, it's a live, um, usually about a 10 minute uh, live stream where I will answer uh, viewer questions uh, that they'll submit in advance. You know, if you ever had a question for a psychologist, then let me know. And, uh, and so I'll be oh, recording awesome. on a weekly basis. And so hopefully that will get me the podcasting bug again.
0: How do people find the mental health Monday?
1: So if they go to my website that they can find it as well, just at the top of the screen, there's a little link that says mental health Mondays at ldspsychologist.com. And, uh, and there will link to onward productions, Facebook page. And I've set up a YouTube channel as well that will have the, um, the episodes. Like I said, there's just one, we just did, uh, one this last week, which, and you will hear the story of my education that I told again tonight about, uh, applying for schools and those sort of things.
0: We are in a time right now, uh, as you know, with with COVID and everything else, it can be stressful. And I love that you combine uh, psychology with the gospel. They are are not two completely separate things. They are two things that go together. Uh, We're kind of getting there on time, but I would love to know, you know, if we have people who are listening to this who are just thinking, you know, between COVID and the trials it brings or whatever other trials, I am really stressed out. What's one I, I know this is a, a silly question to ask for one, but what is one thing that someone can stop and do in the moment? When they're feeling the anxiety, they're feeling the pressure, or they're feeling the the depression, what is one thing you would recommend that we can we can all do? Um so
1: stopping in the moment is, is tricky. And the reason it is, is because we're, um, we're constantly feeding ourselves information and, and that is creating our reality from moment to moment. And, mm. so, and it's hard to extract ourselves from that. And so, uh, you know, we, you know, people say you stop and count to 10 and stuff like that. And those are all good things. I'm not discounting those things, but when you start, when you hit play on that tape again, for people of our age, who knows what that means? Um, uh, when you hit, you know, <laughs> sure. when you hit the play button again, if you're still playing the same script that was going on ten seconds before, then it's just a matter of time before your next, you know, profound feeling of depression or anxiety. And so, what we really have to do is we have to start filling our lives with, with positivity. Um, I, uh, I have a friend, and he's he's such an amazing guy. And, he was um, scrolling through his Facebook feed, and he was just—he uh, was discouraged because it was just a bunch of, you know, bad stuff. You know, this happened, and people complaining about this and those sort of things. And so he told his wife. He says, "You know what? Social media is for the birds. I'm getting off it." And she mm-hmm. kind of looked at him disapprovingly and said, "Give me your phone." So he handed her his—he handed her his phone, and she immediately went and liked all the pages of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve and the General Release Presidency and the Primary Presidency and the Young Women's Presidency, Young Men's Presidency, and she said there. And so now when he goes on Facebook, he still gets some of that stuff, but he gets a message from President Nelson and here's from Elder Uppdorf awesome. and he hears from Sister Roberto and, and all those things. And so if you're feeding yourself a steady diet of fear, then – I got news for you. Fear is going to be the output. Um, Mm. So we have to consider what we're putting into our minds. And I'm not saying we have to, you know, just sit in a robe and read scriptures all day long, but we have to consider what we're watching. We have to consider what we're taking in and, um, and at the very least, try to have a healthy balance of, of positivity and faith. One of the reasons that I have been, um, able to, I think, because I run a little bit anxious by nature, but one of the reasons I've been able to weather COVID without significant anxiety is because I keep looking to the prophets and I haven't seen them panic yet. They, it's, Mm. it's all faith. It's all, we're going to make it through this, hang in there. When, when President Nelson panics, I will panic. Um, But I and I can read CNN and I can read MSNBC and I can read Fox and I can read everything else and it's going to say the exact opposite from what President Nelson is is telling me. But I don't believe he has an agenda except to give us the truth from what he gets from our Father in Heaven. Mm. I think he's an honorable man. I think and I and I know he's a prophet for that sake. Um, So that's I think that's one thing you can do. And so if you change your diet, as it were, of what you're putting into your mind and try to feed it with more positive and less negative, then those moments that you're referring to will, number one, probably not come as frequently, and number two, be much easier to resolve because you've already got that that kind of you know foundation of faith
0: going into it. Uh, you know, it sounds so obvious and so easy and yet you know it's not something that i'm focused on enough and i think it's just phenomenal advice that is excellent david this has all been so enlightening and so enjoyable i want to make sure once again it's psychologist.com that's where people they can get through to you if they want to have you speak or if they want to find out about your books or the podcast or any of those things and yes there is a header for mental health mondays which I think we all need, I mean, every last one of us. So that's just phenomenal. Uh, We are going to wrap up this conversation with the question that we ask all of our guests. And I just realized I didn't prepare you for this. Oh, here we go. (laughs) But uh, we ask every one of our guests, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Oh,
1: that's a great question. I used to think about it more as... um, Kind of, kind of like, like a privilege, you know. That this, what a great, what a great blessing that I was, you know, reserved for the latter days, and to be able to come in a time when the church is strong, and almost wore it like a, like a badge of honor. I've changed my mind on that um, in the last, maybe even in the last year or so, and the and what it means to me is, it means it's an obligation. It's an obligation to help. It's an obligation to serve. Uh, there are people who are. Um, whose situations are much, much less fortunate everywhere. They're, every society has a top and a bottom. And, um, and, and our society, the bottom of our society is struggling. And so when I look at that and I think of what I have as, as a Latter day Saint in 2020, I think that is not only, it's, I mean, I guess it's a badge, but I kind of feel like taking that off and putting it in my drawer and saying, this means that I am responsible to help those who don't have as much, and not just in sharing the gospel, but in being a friend, being an example, um, at lifting up, you know, lifting the, hang- the hands that hang down, those sorts of things. That's, I think, what, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, that's what he did. Uh, his life was all about service to other people. And so being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to me, means that I emulate his example by helping those doing for others what they can't do for themselves and uh, and reaching down and pulling up.
0: Awesome. He is a husband, a father, a grandfather now. He is a licensed psychologist and author. He is a uh, podcast host and definitely someone that our world needs right now. David Morgan, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And my special thanks to my new friend, David Morgan. I'm so grateful for his perspective. And he really gave me a lot to ponder this week since, uh, since he and I talked. Thank you so much, David. You're a good man doing good work. Uh, this week in my latter-day life, I had a really unique experience. Uh, as I'm recording this, today is Sunday. So last night, Saturday night, uh, I was kicking back in my recliner watching Sports Center on uh, ESPN and just having a normal Saturday night when all of a sudden my 16-year-old son Keaton called me on the phone and as I answered it, he said, Hey, Dad, the mountain's on fire. And I thought, the mountain's on fire, what are you talking about? And we live right at the base of uh, some foothills that go up into the mountains, and it's a beautiful place to live, being surrounded by mountains uh, literally less than three miles away from us. Um, we can be on the trail heading, heading right up uh, to a beautiful mountainside. And my son said, we just went to the park, and when we got outside, we looked up and saw that the mountain was on fire. And I grabbed my wife. We went outside, and sure enough, it took my breath away. It was so big, and we could see these massive flames just a few miles away from our home. And so we walked uh, to a, a park that's kind of kitty corner from our home. And when we got there, one of our neighbors was out there with his kids, and we stood and watched the awesome destruction of this fire. And my kids go to well, all went to, and my son goes to Pleasant Grove High School and there's a big G on the side of the hill for Pleasant Grove and the fire was right there it was so close i mean it really felt close and we stood there not feeling threatened at all but uh but just in awe of just this incredible destruction and we watched as the fire trucks started to make their way up and you know we were talking about where the different fire roads were we saw the police lights as they were blocking off streets and, uh, as we stood there, I, I didn't feel threatened, but I was certainly worried that that fire was going to spread. And if it had spread, uh, the wrong way, we would, we would have been in trouble. As we checked the news, we saw that they were evacuating homes. Again, these are homes that are less than three miles away from our home. And they ended up evacuating 37 homes. And as I stood there and watched this total destruction, uh, I just had to say a quick prayer and I prayed that the all the workers who were up there would be safe and that they'd figure out how to fight this fire and I prayed for our family that we'd be safe and for our home and everything else. And after about 45 minutes or so we went back into our house and I was very tired and as I prayed again before I went to bed I felt peace that everything was going to be okay. I was able to go to bed and sleep for the night and as I got up this morning I went outside and Sure enough, the fire was under control. The people were allowed to uh, return to their homes. And we watched uh, for a while as planes and helicopters dropped fire retardant and dropped water. And it was awesome. And I just felt so very thankful that we were okay. And then tonight we had our family prayer. It was my turn to say it. And as I prayed, I I always say, you know, we have those things that we always say, those rote things. And I always say we're grateful for our home. And tonight, after I said we're grateful for our home, I paused and I felt like I was going to cry because I was suddenly emotional. Because tonight, I am grateful for our home. And I'm grateful in a way tonight that I was not two nights ago or three nights ago. We have lived in this wonderful home for more than 16 years. We love it here. We love our home. We love our street. We love our neighbors. And I was so grateful that as it had been threatened by fire, that it never got even close, that we never really had to worry. God was so good to us, and no one was injured. About 100 acres were burned up on the mountainside, but they were able to get it under control. What an incredible blessing. And as much as I (laughs) at once hate it, I'm also so grateful that every once in a while you get to see a close one. And every once in a while you get to see something that you go, wow, That could happen. And it could happen so fast. And I'm just so grateful that it didn't. But what a great reminder to be humble and gracious. I know there are a lot of people in our nation right now who are struggling, and my heart just goes out to them, uh, who are struggling with these big fires that are going on. What a terrible time. And it's times like this that we have to remember that He is in charge that He has this. He knows what we need, and He will see us through even the greatest of challenges. I'm so grateful for my Heavenly Father's hand in our lives, and I am grateful for our home, and I hope I never have to hear the words again, Dad, the mountain's on fire. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day Life. Thank you so much for checking in with us again this week. We really appreciate it if you know anyone who would enjoy this show, if you could share it with them, that'd be great. Also, we are on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We would love for you to join us there. Well, I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening.